everybody. Welcome back. I'm Katie. And I'm Kate. And this is Premeditated. We are excited to have you join us. We hope you enjoyed the previous two episodes. Tonight is my turn. Kate gets to take the wheel and it's going <laughs> to get crazy. <laughs> it is, though, because I'm really not a good driver. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's that's true. I can anyone... absolutely attest to that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so she's taking the wheel. So literally everybody buckle up. All right. Let's get started. Yes, so, I'm so excited. I don't know at anything about this case. So I wanted to do my episode on this particular case because I'm originally, as you know, from the Pacific Northwest, but my grandfather lived in Montana. Montana has always had a special place in my heart. Uh, we went there quite a bit to see my grandfather. I just pulled it up. It looks like you read the book. Was it Shadow Man? Yeah. Okay. Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer and the birth of FBI profiling by Ron Francel. So uh, I would highly recommend it to all true crime fans. He is an amazing writer. And this case actually was the first serial killer case that they tested out the initial rollout of criminal profiling. Cool. So those criminal mind heads like myself, yeah. this is where it all started. So the BSU, Behavioral Science Unit, this was their first case that they were like, okay, we're going to try this new technique of profiling. And they nailed it. Cool. Nailed it. So after this, they were like, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Clearly this worked. We got the guy. (laughs) So I could be saying this wrong, but this case is about a guy named David Mayerhofer. I looked up how to pronounce Mayerhofer, and they said Mayerhofer, obviously, because I keep saying it. But all right, so we start out in... Small town America. Okay. So this is Manhattan, Montana, population 900. Wow. Bustling. Do they have a Times Square? They have a Main Street. (laughs) Manhattan, it was actually already a town before 1891. Okay. But in 1891, beer brewing executives from New York City's Manhattan Malting Company. Heck yeah. Moved operations closer to the barley fields out west. Makes sense. It's divided... uh, Geographically divided right down the middle by the Northern Pacific Railway. Okay. And, you know, like the most exciting thing up until this murder was like some kids like tunneled under the liquor store. What? To break in. That's brilliant. They Shawshank Redemption that. Yeah. But they ended up not making it to the liquor store. Like they tunneled under the (laughs) building. So did they end up at like the candy store and they get up and they're like, like, ah, they, oh, like, a, like a hard job breakers store. for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Fast forward to the sixties and mischief gets a bit more serious. All right. It's the sixties. Things are happening. Yeah. When we'll just say some incidents happened at a consistent frequency where dead animals started showing up. It was the talk of the town for a while. It was clear that the same person was doing it because the same thing kept happening. Gross. Can you at least say what kind of animal it was for puppies and cats? Okay. Okay. Great. I hate even saying that. Yeah. The police are looking into it, but they can't come up with anyone. They don't, they never figured out who did it, but. Uh, And it was the talk of the town. And then all of a sudden, when people stopped talking about it, it stopped. Weird. So clearly the person was doing it for attention. Yeah. They were doing it because they got the publicity. Yeah, I think so. I think it was probably like 
small town is probably in the paper. Like, yeah, it didn't, they didn't say when that was happening. It was like like right before this. Okay. So now we get to case one. I should say crime one. It was a Sunday afternoon in March of 1967 and 13-year-old Bernie Pullman and his buddy Ricky were climbing the girders of the Nixon Bridge. So they were climbing this bridge, 1967, March in Montana, which is still, that's cold. cold. Yeah. And they're cannonballing into the what? the Gladden River what? below. That's cold. I hope they were wearing wetsuits. I mean, they were boys. Like asking for hypothermia. I you guess, know? you know. Their parents probably Jeez. didn't even know where they were. Cheesy peasy. As skinny Bernie sat atop the highest beam, he prepared to leap while Ricky's down below, okay. kind of daring him probably. Oh, Jesus. Okay. He suddenly grabs his chest and he says, I'm shocked. And... He plunges 20 feet into this shallow sandbar, appeared to swim, and then disappeared in the current. What? Yeah. Ricky ran, of course, ran to the nearest farmhouse, and they called the sheriff. So they look and look all night up and down the river, like five miles up and down the river. Bernie's father actually walked miles of the riverbank every night looking for his son. Jesus. So three weeks later, deputies find Bernie's waterlogged body. An autopsy showed that he had actually been shot through the heart with a small caliber gun, probably a 22. Uh, the bullet was sent to, for ballistics testing in DC, but it didn't reveal anything of okay, value. So shoot. basically it was chalked up to, well, it was probably someone shooting ground squirrels and he must've been hit by a stray bullet. Ugh. So they ruled it an accident. Yikes. Okay. They were like, they had really nothing to go off of. And well, and the worst thing that ever happened to that town was like kids tunneling under the liquor yeah, store. So like dead cats and dogs. Yeah. So now we're going to head to early May 1968. So we're talking like a year and a couple months later okay. at Headwaters State Park, which I've included a, a picture. Awesome. Near Three Forks, which was close enough to Manhattan that they were their principal rival in sports. Okay. So early May 1968, a Bozeman sixth grader, his name was Michael Rainey, was one of 200 scouts at, they call it a campery. <laughs> fucking love that stuff. Oh my god, times were so innocent. I know, then. I love like jamborees and a camperie. Oh my god, I love that. It reminds me of True Beverly Hills. Oh yes, you know that with show? Shelley Long! So good. Oh, so yeah. good. This is not like that. They weren't at, they weren't doing like Beverly Hills what a thrill. Beverly Hills what a thrill. <laughs> sure no. they were. No. no? Okay. Shucks. <laughs> no one had a mansion or a Lamborghini. <laughs> what trash, you know? <laughs> So Michael Rainey, who is in the sixth grade, was with 200 other Boy Scouts at a camporee in May 1968 at the uh, Missouri Headwaters State Park just outside Three Forks. Okay. And that's where Lewis and Clark discovered that the Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin Rivers merged to become the Missouri River. Oh, okay. So, and it was a camporee. So it was a camporee. It's going to be great. So, and the, the scouts' pup tents were arranged in close ranks across a two-acre grass area. Like, they weren't more than three feet from each other. Okay. So, Michael Rainey and his friend Kenny Summers went to bed that night in their little pup tent. And they were less than 30 feet from the scoutmaster. The boys fell fast asleep. And it rained that night. And they didn't even wake up for the rain. Oh, okay. Kenny awoke at 5.30 a.m. the next day, and he was startled as he rolled over, and he saw Michael's face covered in blood. Oh, shoot. So he was like, 
did he have a nosebleed in the middle of the night? He he really didn't know why he had blood all over his face. And he tried like rousing him from his sleep and he really couldn't. So he yelled out for the scout leaders and they came running into the tent and they tried to wake him, but they couldn't. So they dragged him out of the tent and they pulled back his sleeping bag and they found his sweatshirt all bloody. So they were like, hmm. that is so weird. Michael was still alive and he had vomited on himself. Hmm. So they were inspecting him like the scout leaders are inspecting him. I'm sure all the Boy Scouts are around now and right. terrified. And uh, so they were inspecting him and they found a lump above his ear and dirt in his hair. And they thought, well... Has he been roughhousing during the night or did he fall down in the dark? Like what, what happened? So the adults rushed him to the hospital where doctors found a small stab wound under his armpit. It was like an inch deep and an inch wide. They concluded he'd also been clubbed on the head with something small but hard. And nobody heard anything right. all night. Like they're three feet apart from each other and like 30 feet at most from the scoutmasters. Nobody heard anything. Back at camp while he's at the hospital, deputies are checking things out. Like okay. they're like, what the hell happened? Is yeah. he st- he's still alive at this point? He's still alive okay. at the hospital. So they discovered that the back of the tent of Kenny and Michael's tent had been sliced open. Oh, God. And someone had reached in and stabbed him through his sleeping bag. And so, and Kenny's right next to him. Like, can you imagine for the rest of his life, Kenny has to be like, oh my God, this person, like my friend was. And like, it could have easily been him. Yeah. Like if he, if they had slept in different spots. They proceeded to issue lie detector tests to all the scouts and leaders and they all passed. Jesus. Now we know that now that those are unreliable, but back then in, in 1968, like that was the primary tool that they used to eliminate suspects. And they're like, they are unreliable, but they're also sort of like, they're not reliable in terms of like, will you use it in in court? No. Yeah. But is it a good way to weed out people? And I don't know if they were admissible in court back then. Yeah. I'm not actually sure either. So suspicion of course fell on Kenny Mm. since he had a weapon. He had a pocket knife. Like sixth grade Kenny? Yeah. Sixth grade Kenny. Yikes. They quickly ruled him out concluding he would have to be a wicked genius (laughs) to brutally assault his tent mate in the night. Lie beside him until dawn, pretend to find the body, and then yell for help. They clearly have been watching some some television. Uh, Michael Rainey did die a few days later. Oh, shoot. Um, from that blunt force trauma wound. So it was the head wound and not mm-hmm. the blood that did it? The okay. knife wound didn't puncture the lung. Like I said, the coroner found that it was only an inch by an inch. Um, Makes me think of like an arrowhead. Because what on earth is an inch wide and an inch thick? The coroner thought maybe a pocket knife. That's why they thought Kenny did it. Yeah. Initially, but then Kenny's like, I don't... Bro, I'm in sixth grade. I I don't do that shit. I read the Hardy Boys. Like, (laughs) what are you doing? (laughs) So the blow was his cause of death, but it hadn't fractured the skull, but it had caused a concussion so violent that it literally killed a fist-sized chunk of Michael's cerebrum, turning it into necrotic mush. Oh, honey. So this second strange death became as much of a mystery as Bernie's shooting. Huh. Because they were like, okay, like one thing we can rule out as an accident. And then this other thing happens so close. They're different ages and it's a different situation. And Not it's, enough to like connect that, Not right? really, but kind of like, oh, wow. Like two 
strange deaths within to, like like probably months. just see it as tragic right and i mean of course the people of manhattan and three forks were uh sad about it but michael wasn't from there he was from bozeman oh okay so they were you know they might have been like well that's unfortunate but and it would have been up to like michael's family to really like push the local police to keep things going right? right because i mean like if you're from out of town local police yeah they might they'll be interested but they don't have the constant pressure of right. a person down the street who's going to be at their door every eight minutes for like things like that yeah you know? i did not find any evidence that it was investigated in depth well you know small town you know police force in the 60s they yeah, don't have very many resources things didn't happen so they weren't prepared yeah so, okay. and you'll, you'll see this next, the next crime that happens is uh, quite a different scenario, but so we fast forward five years. Okay. Nothing's happened over five years. Okay. That I could find. All right. So no more animal cruelty, like virtually nothing. So I'm sure everyone in Manhattan is like, okay, like they, they're breathing easy. Life got back to normal. Right. People started forgetting about yeah. these two tragic things that happened five years ago. Right. So Headwater State Park, again, let's go camping. Yeah, <laughs> right. That sounds beautiful. Lewis and Clark loved it. We will too. So uh, it's June 25th, 1973, five years after Michael and the Jaeger family. And I think it's Jaeger because I went to high school with someone with the same last name and they pronounced it Jaeger. So it's with a J. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, like the drink. Jägermeister. Yeah. <laughs> that was my drink of choice in, <laughs> oh, in college. Oh. I can still smell and taste it. Oh no. And that smell. Yeah. Like, it's oh. not a good one. The last time I had Jägermeister, I swallowed a ring. What? <laughs> that's a story for another yeah, time. That's a story for another time. <laughs> the Jäger family from Michigan were on a summer trip through the Badlands, which are awesome. Yeah. And Mount Rushmore and Little Bighorn. So uh, the family that gathered at the Headwater State Park consisted of Bill and Marietta. So those were the parents. And then Marietta's retired parents, they came up from Arizona. Okay. Probably a little snowbird. Yeah, some cute snowbirds. Cute little snowbirds. And they had a camper on the back of their pickup truck. Okay. So Marietta and Bill and Marietta's parents stayed in the camper. So they have five children. 16-year-old Danny, he slept alone in the family van. Then Heidi, who's 12, 14-year-old Frank, nine-year-old Joe and seven-year-old Susie Yeager all camped in a tent. So yikes. I mean, again, parenting was different at this time. Yeah. <laughs> I would never do that. They're in a tent and you're in a camper. Different times. I know it's different times. There I can't were no judge. internet perverts. Right. And you know, like they were just real perverts. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> just the real kind. <laughs> but like, Shit like this didn't happen. No, I mean, like they, you could go camping. And or again, it did happen, but people just didn't know about it because right. they didn't have the internet. Also, you have to remember the media did, wasn't as widespread. That's true. So, and cases like yeah. this, it would stay localized. Or, to it would stay Montana. localized. Montana and, would know about it. Yeah, but Minnesota wouldn't. Yeah. So, of course, like Minnesota feels safe because yeah. whoever's killing in Montana, they don't know about. True so. that. So Marietta checked on all of the children before bed, giving them each a kiss. Oh, babies. Um, Sister Heidi woke up in the middle of the night and she felt a breeze. Like that's what it says woke her up, which that would wake me up too. Yeah. So Sister Heidi, she woke up in the middle of the night and she felt a breeze that was kind of unnatural for an enclosed tent. Yeah. So she stretched her hands towards the back of the tent behind her and felt wet grass. Uh -huh. And she looked over and saw that Susie was gone. So she immediately jumped up 
And that's when she saw one of Susie's stuffed animals outside on the lawn. So she yelled, Susie's gone. There's a big hole in the tent and I can't find Susie. Her dad jumped up. He saw the, the cut in the tent. Oh, there was a cut. So that's what it was. It was a cut. In it the was tent. a half moon cut. Oh, Jesus. In the tent. So pretty soon they, they all had their flashlights out because it was still dark and they were searching for Susie. Bill, the father, drove to the nearest town and alerted the sheriff. Um, and that was in Three Forks. Pretty soon, law enforcement and strangers were all looking for Susie. Morning came and they closed all the roads in and out of the park. They looked along the river and the barrow pits and the surrounding hills. And there's still no sign of Susie. Um, So they called the FBI in Mm -hmm. to take over the investigation. And I think why the FBI was involved in this case and not Michael's is because Michael's body was there. Oh, sure, sure. And he was still alive. Right. Right. At the time. And she's clearly, she's been kidnapped. Right. So. Yeah. And any kidnapping, I think the FBI is called in for any kidnapping. You could be right. I think that that is. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. As the days wore on, the search got more intense. 12,000 Airstream trailer enthusiasts had gathered on the campus of Minnesota, Montana State University in Bozeman, and they jumped in and helped. But of course, like I was really. Campers unite. But also simultaneously, they became suspects. So wait, who? The the Airstream camp? Yeah, the Airstream people. All of the people? Because you said there were lots of them. They were like, you're a suspect? You're you're a suspect. You're a suspect. It's like the Oprah, except the opposite of what you want. Um, So no, because I don't think all of them helped, but I think the majority of them did. But of course, the FBI was being smart and was like, we got to screen all you guys. Right. Like, and you know, like what? you're you're inserting yourself into an investigation. Yeah. Why? Yeah. So I say screen. They didn't really screen them. They just took their names down on a list. <laughs> so they're like. Because. Like, give me your name. Okay. Bill Johnson. Yeah. Okay. And oh, Bill Smith. Another Bill Johnson. <laughs> We're getting a lot of interesting. John Doe. Common- Jane Doe. Yeah. Jimmy Joe. Yeah. A lot of common names here. <laughs> So, yeah, so they, they took down, they weren't irresponsible about it. They took down a list of their names. The search, it, it became pretty large. So the governor ordered five National Guard helicopters to oh help. My. Montana Highway Department searched Barrow Pits. Civil Air Patrol dispatched their pilots to fly low over rivers. And professional divers were deployed. Okay. So other than her stuffed animal and a rock with a reddish stain, Aww. they didn't find anything. Okay. So it was like Susie vanished into thin air. Okay. The Jaegers were all given lie detector tests. And like I said before, at the time, lie detectors were thought to be the best investigative tool. Sure. Law enforcement and the FBI went door to door, not far from the park. So this is all happening at a really pivotal moment in history. So it's right after Manson, Kent State, right in in Ohio. Ohio. The Supreme Court made it illegal to execute killers. And you said it was from... Yeah, that the Supreme Court had found it unconstitutional to... The death penalty was unconstitutional. So between... The 70s at some, I don't know the exact dates, but there were, there was a time period in okay. there where, where the death penalty. See, was I didn't know that. I was yeah. like, Ooh, okay. And then Air, my mom met, remembers this, uh, Arab terrorists murdered, uh, the Israeli athletes at the Olympics in Munich, Watergate, yep. Edmund Kemper, Vietnam, Dean Coral in Texas, the candy man. So Manhattan naturally thought they were 
how America was supposed to be. And they were protected from all of that. Okay. And they were like, oh, you know, those crazy hippies in California and like that crazy killer in Texas. And, you know, it's not going to touch us because we're so insulated from right. everything. Investigators interviewed any sexual deviant within the immediate immediate location and beyond. Hmm. Um, they did compile a lengthy list of known sex criminals in Western Montana okay. since 1958. Okay. So more than 100 names ranging from peepers and flashers <laughs> to rapists and child molesters. Gross. Even a 12-year-old boy mm. who had a habit of making obscene phone calls. <laughs> like, what is the definition of a Right, like, phone I feel calls? like that's every 12-year-old like, boy. Ooh, Mrs. Burnside. Yeah, like, I just don't... <laughs> what do you got on for panties? I know. Like, like, what panties Is you your refrigerator got? running? <laughs> like, you better catch it. What did they... Was it literally just any prank call was obscene and they're like, you... You must have killed this girl. So, yeah. So that kid got put on the list, too. And they talked to him. kid. I know. His life was ruined. His life was ruined because he made prank phone calls. Don't make prank phone calls. that's why you don't make prank (laughs) phone calls, kids. So, yeah. So they they interviewed all all of these people, including the 12-year-old boy. Everyone was a suspect. Anyone who was deemed odd was especially suspect. Well... Including, you got me. <laughs> including a quiet kid who came home to Ma- Manhattan from Vietnam to work odd jobs at local ranches for pocket money. He was friendly enough, but he didn't talk much about the war or anything else. As most people returning from Vietnam yeah, yeah. behaved. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know anyone who came back from Vietnam. He's like, let's like, chat. Let's want to have a fireside chat about what I did? <laughs> you want to talk about what I went through? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> David was a hard, this is what a rancher said. David was a hard worker who knew how things worked and was, he was just odd. <laughs> just an odd duck, I you think, know? I, th- I bet I've been described as I know. an odd duck. Oh my God, yes. But the investigators determined that all of the above, like these hapless people had nothing to do with Susie's disappearance. And they chose to focus on the real bad guys and sexual predators that popped up on their radar. <laughs> So a real bad guy. Yes. Not the prank callers. <laughs> and also keep in mind they didn't have they had no way, they didn't have a database. That is so insane to me to think yeah. about. Yeah. Like, so just, they had no, I mean, there was no CODIS, there was no VICAP. They they had no way of of tracking these guys. Right. So hoaxers are coming out of the woodwork, uh, even going so far as to send a handprint and ransom letter to the Detroit News. People are gross. Yeah, they're disgusting. And Crank, there were crank calls and tipsters, but psychics, of course, like just, you know. Sylvia well, Brown was there. Yeah. <laughs> um, hundreds of leads that went nowhere. So uh, law enforcement had a command center set up at Headwater State Park. But in the meantime, the sheriff's wife and the Jaegers are still at the, the park. Okay. And the sheriff's wife received a call from the supposed kidnapper. And like to prove that he was a kidnapper, he said, Susie has humped fingernails. Humped fingernails. Yeah. And the sheriff passed this information onto the Jaegers. And they said she did indeed have weird fingernails. And it was a birth defect. Weird. Yeah. Unfortunately, the caller didn't leave any additional information. Marietta, the mother, made several news appearances over the next uh, few weeks and pleaded for Susie's return. Uh, She truly believed that Susie was still alive. Yeah. So six weeks after uh, Susie vanished, the Jaegers had to go back to Michigan. And the FBI advised them to buy a tape recorder to record phone conversations 
and they printed their phone number in the local newspaper. Mm, okay. Marietta believed Susie was still alive and never left the house for like a month because mm. she didn't want to miss a call. Right. But when she finally did, the phone rang and the oldest brother, Danny, answered. Oh, God. And a strange man with a, they called it Western accent. Do I have an accent? I, I mean, yes, you do. Have oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I was like, Western, like country Western? Like you talk like, howdy. I don't or, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. Or like I, West Coast, which is like I've never California. heard of that Western accent. Yeah. Like my yeah. cousin from Seattle, she also has like a. Yeah. It's, it's. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's so funny. So he said that this guy had uh, a Western accent, talked about her fingernails again, said he had her, but he couldn't tell her like Danny was begging for the kidnapper to tell him where Susie was. Yeah. He was like, well, I have her, but it's important for me to not get caught. Like he kept emphasizing that it was almost like he was asking Danny, like, how can you help me not get caught? We promise not to (laughs) press charges. (laughs) So he assured Danny that Susie was fine and gave him no other information and then hung up. So it literally took the FBI a month to trace this phone call. That's how long it took back then. Wow. Okay. And they traced it to a truck stop payphone in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Huh. But by the time they got there, it was impossible to get friends. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a month. <laughs> yeah. And back then, like, payphones were the, like, sole means of communication for lots of, like, commuters. And at a truck stop? Yeah. Yeah. They're stopping to make phone calls so yeah good luck with that yeah exactly um and the fbi profilers they they just knew that the suspect wasn't done right so so far we have the like the dead animals we have the bernie got shot oh right i forgot about bernie bernie got shot we have the boy scout campery michael and we have Susie. Susie. okay so we've got like three crimes but seemingly all unrelated right i mean the camping ones i think are the most where you'd be like those that's weird but a seven-year-old girl compared to an 11 12 year old boy right that's true completely different mo so you're not connecting them right based on yeah the victimology just doesn't like so fast forward to manhattan montana saturday february 9th 1974 okay wow because it was two years later because it was or 73 june in 73 okay it's February Susie 74. February okay, so 74. like only like six months, seven, eight months. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So Sandra Mae Smalligan was Sandy Dickman when she graduated from Manhattan High. So she was a native okay. of Manhattan, Montana. She's pretty unpopular, loved her parents, and her cute white Ford Cortina, which I don't know what that car looks like, but evidently it was adorable. Okay. When she was a senior, she met a cute carpenter named Jack Smalligan, which I love that name. That is really cute. Jack Smalligan. And they married on her 18th birthday. Okay. They lived in a two-room apartment over the Manhattan Machinery Company, which was the local farm implement dealer and the biggest employer on Main Street. Sandy's dad was the shop foreman, and the shop was owned by his buddy, Cliff Mayerhofer. Okay. The name. Yes. So David Mayerhofer was Cliff's son. Okay. The marriage fell apart in less than a year. Oh, and Sandy shoot. was depressed for a while. Yeah. Her friends encouraged her to forget Jack and start dating. So she met Bob Harrison. Ooh. Good looking hot rodder who was five years older than Sandy. And he had returned to Manhattan after a few years in California, which made him seem exotic. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a <laughs> California man. <laughs> Their relationship ran hot and cold. 
and Sandy casually dated other guys pretty much the whole time they were together. Okay. So one of these guys was David Mayerhofer, her landlord's son. Right. Uh, A nice enough guy who'd been a few years ahead of Sandy in high school. So now we're going to kind of dive into David's background a little bit. Yeah, let me know. So David Mayerhofer was born on June 8th, 1949 in Bozeman, Montana. Okay. One of Clifford and Eleanor Mayerhofer's five children. Shortly after his birth, the family moved to the small town of Manhattan where uh, David would spend his childhood and adolescence. Okay. He attended high school there where due to his melancholic temperament and introverted nature, he was considered. So basically he was an emo. Um, (laughs) He was considered an outcast and periodically bullied by other students. Yes. And after graduating in 1967, which animal cruelty Oh, is that when it started? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, Mayor Hofer worked several odd jobs before being drafted into the army in the fall of 1968. And that was the, there was that like lull in things, right? Wasn't it like yeah. between 68 and 70? Yeah. Okay. So he enlisted in the Marine Corps on October 1st, spent the few next few months in San Diego. And uh, after completing his basic training, he was sent to uh, MCAS Cherry Point, before being dispatched to fight in the Vietnam War in 1969, he was awarded the National Defense Service Medal, the Vietnam Service Medal, and the Vietnam Campaign Medal. In August 1971, he returned to the U.S. Okay. He continued his service at uh, Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton. Okay. And then in 1973, Mayor Hofer was honorably discharged from the Army and returned to Manhattan. So he returned to Manhattan in 1973. Got it. March 1967, Bernie was shot. May 1968, Michael, the Boy Scout. And then June 1973, Susie Yeager. Got it. So, yeah. So the break was literally the five year break was. Yeah, Vietnam. Interesting. Okay. So David Mayerhofer is back in Manhattan, Montana, 1973, working odd jobs, working for his dad, you know, at the machinery shop. Sure. And he'd asked Sandy out a few days before Christmas and she went, but she just felt like something was off. Okay. Yeah. So good instincts. Yeah, exactly. Always follow that gut instinct. Oh, yeah. That's gotten me out of some shady situations. Yeah. And I've ignored it and I've gotten into some shady situations. <laughs> so she said his eyes were unsettling. Like one of her friends, she told one of her friends, his eyes were unsettling. They were like deep black pools. Gross. Super gross. Super That's gross. terrifying. Yeah. I've met people like that. Like dead eyes. Just yeah. dead shark eyes. Oh God. Dead doll's eyes. Yeah. It's yeah. She hesitated to be too firm with him though, because his dad is her dad's boss. Yeah. And they're friends, but like, what's Cliff going to think if it's a small town? Right. If Sandy's like, oh, you're unsettling. Right. <laughs> like, you're a creep. You're a creep. So, yeah. So she hesitated to be too firm with him. So she told him um, after the first of the year, he was so persistent. Like he was getting her flowers and blah, oh. blah, blah, all through December. They'd only gone out on one date right before Christmas. And so after the first of the year, she told him in the kindest way possible, they probably shouldn't go out again. Yeah. He stopped calling. Oh, okay. Well, at least he took that's better than Richard. Right. (laughs) Fast forward to February 9th. 
Sandy was with her parents at a high school basketball game. And after the game, her parents dropped her off at her little apartment. Okay. And it was just after 11 p.m. And she still wanted to go out for a couple drinks. Okay. And it's a small town. So everything's within walking distance. So she changed her clothes and walked uh, half a block over to the American Legion. Okay. The Legion. (laughs) We know how to get crazy at a Legion. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So she went over there to have a couple drinks. It was known as the rowdiest place on a Manhattan Saturday night. And uh, a little after midnight, Sandy said goodbye to her friends. And she stepped off the curb towards her apartment and nobody ever saw her again. Oh, no. When Monday rolled around and her parents still hadn't heard from her, they began to worry. So they reported it to the sheriff. And at first, law enforcement brushed it off as a young woman who got bored and took off. But by Tuesday, John Dickman was demanding that they take action. So they searched her apartment, but there's no signs of forced entry or a struggle or any, they like, they literally couldn't find anything. I think they said someone saw a beer glass on her headboard. Okay. Like a half full beer glass on her headboard, which they thought was weird because she doesn't drink beer. So that is weird. Yep. But they never took it for evidence. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Way to Um, go guys. So finally, by day six, they mounted a full-scale search using dogs and search teams made up of volunteers and lawmen. The search area widened to include rural homesteads like the Lockhart Ranch. So the Lockhart Homestead sat abandoned at the end of a nearly invisible truck path across a dry creek and through some cottonwoods. So it was pretty isolated. Yeah, I can, that's creepy. I can even imagine what it looks like because there's so many places like that in my hometown. What? So, yeah. Like, oh, Lord. Like the place gets foreclosed on and people buy the land, but they just don't have the money or the wherewithal or the energy to like tear down the property. So they're like, well, whatever. Yikes. Like, yeah. There's a lot of homesteads like that in the West because people just want property. Right. They don't care about any buildings. There's a lot of abandoned buildings. So it was surrounded by a rusty fence that that kept cows and strangers out of the yard. <laughs> but the gate was was open. The buildings were old and had obviously been unoccupied for a long time. So yeah. there was a lot of outbuildings and like a little cracker box house stood to one side. So okay. it's white siding was no longer white. It was pretty worn down. Sure. The front door was unlocked. So investigators went inside. The whole place was barely bigger than a two car garage. What? So pretty tiny. Yeah. They did see an old table and one chair in the kitchen where it looked like someone had recently sat. That is like a, that literally is terrifying. I'm getting chills right now. It's a terrifying image. So just to set the scene, this creepy old abandoned farm, um, but it looked like somebody had recently been there. So just outside the investigators saw a burned out burn barrel oh no encircled oh no yeah encircled by a sooty ring of burn grass and charred dirt they didn't really think anything of it because it was a common sight and sometimes a trash fire just gets away from a guy oh my god <laughs> when i worked for the department of forestry like we would literally go out to issue burn permits and there was all these like old ranchers that were like anti-government were like i don't need your permission to burn on my property <laughs> and then pretty soon it's a 2000 acre fire yeah. but they the investigators moved to the barn and they didn't initially see anything suspicious um there was a tightly closed hay hatch which i think it was in the ground of the barn um like on the floor of the barn oh and it was corroded shut okay 
and they peeked through the cracks, but they didn't see anything remarkable. It was like these boxes. guys are not curious at all. No. I'd be like, I, I mean, even if I'm not looking for a crime scene, I'd be like, what's down there? Yeah, there's some buried treasure or something. Yeah, I know, I know. And it's not like it didn't sound like it had a padlock on it. So like, I would have maybe I don't know pulled harder. Yeah. Like, I, so they were like, not a big deal. Let's get out of here and head over to the next homestead. And then one eagle-eyed investigator sees something white on some sagebrush. And he's like, what is that? And he walks over, ladies' underwear. Oh, no. And new, like fairly, fairly new with little blue flowers on it. Oh. Yeah. So he's like, oh, okay. We're looking for a missing girl. We just found some underwear. Things just got real. Yeah. So they rush back into the barn because it's the closest structure and they kicked the hay hatch off its corroded hinges and just crawled in. And uh, they surrounded by oiled drums and boxes partially covered by an oiled canvas tarp and camouflaged with loose straw was Sandy's little white car. Mm-hmm. That's when things really ratchet up. So an hour later, swarms of law enforcement are all over the Lockhart homestead looking for more evidence. They dust the car for prints. And while they're searching the barn, they find a handsaw, a bloody leather whip. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And a knotted rope. So those items were sent away to Quantico for further testing. Yeah. They returned to the house to search again. And this time they found a large knife, some blood-like scraping from the cupboards. It was blood on the cupboards and they like scraped it off. I I don't know. And some fibers. And also they opened a closet and found a pile of human excrement. (laughs) And it was not old. That's the shit cupboard. I know. And the thing that gets me is there's literally a functioning outhouse behind this house. So they found the human excrement. I don't know if they took a sample, <laughs> but then they went out to the public like Jurassic Park. <laughs> 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 That's what I'm picturing. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is like, "That's a pile of shit." <laughs> that they went out to this pump house and the burn area that they saw earlier okay and there they found a used tissue and pieces of burned cloth they also found a stick burned at both ends and there were globs of something nobody could identify oh no but every veteran lawman secretly dreaded to find out so they were like it's it's some sort of skin probably well, it's or like, like human fat human, yeah yeah melted human parts parts yeah And the ashes around the burn barrel revealed more identified gunk and shards of bone fragments. Oh, no. After that, the sheriff showed some clothes recovered from Sandy's car to her parents, and they confirmed that they were her clothes, her, her daughters. Right. And an FBI agent actually suspected that Sandy had been murdered and burned, her corpse then crushed into pieces and scattered across the homestead where they could be hidden in plain sight. For days, they covered every inch of the property. And then one of these days, the deputies spied a pickup truck on a nearby hill. And before they could shoo it away, and it was, it turns out, it was just a local guy, an overeager cop wannabe that everybody knew. We've all been there. Guess what his name is? <laughs> what? David Mayerhofer. Thought it was just going to be some random guy, but no, it's it's the David. Guy. It's David. So a former oh, Boy God. Scout and Marine. He was in his early twenties by then. Friendly and reasonably bright, 
and he loved to talk cop. It's I, just, uh, he was interviewed as a suspect earlier in the investigation because he went out on a date with her. The cops were like, they were looking at all the guys that had gone out on dates with her. And he came up. They ruled him out because okay. he's such a nice guy. Right. So he was down there talking shop with the cops. They knew that he had been interviewed, but that he was he was cleared and he was super friendly. And he, he literally hopped out of his truck with a big old smile and told the cops that he was confident he was going to break Sandy's case. Oh my God. Yeah, you are. Because you know a lot more. <laughs> Let so. me tell you guys something. Yeah. So then he hands the deputies a red blouse that he said he found. What the fuck? And they no one talk, believes you, buddy. Except these guys. Yeah, but like talk about inserting yourself in an investigation. Right. So they took it and sent him away. And this was a crime scene after all. So a day after the search wrapped up, a man went into the FBI's office in Bozeman. And told them he had a gut feeling his son was somehow involved. And his son went out with Sandy once. And there was some concerning circumstantial evidence. It never says what that is. But the prominent businessman from Manhattan needed the FBI to keep his identity quiet. It was Cliff Merhofer. Yeah. When parents kind of rat out their children, that that's that's brave. I mean, that's that takes some guts because I mean, he's probably I mean, he's known David's entire life that yeah. the boy ain't right. And yeah. it's probably like, I gotta yeah, do I what's gotta, right, right. Here. Cliff did the right thing. He went in and he told the FBI. So the test results were returned from Quantico, and it was as everyone feared. So the bones belonged to Sandy Small again. However, some of the remains seem to belong to another person entirely. Closer examination suggested they came from a girl between five and eight years old. Oh, no. Susie (gasps) Yeager was seven years old. Oh, no. Yeah. So, meanwhile, David's name wasn't among law enforcement's top seven suspects. Um, among those being Sandy's ex-husband, Jack, and her sometimes boyfriend, Bob. But David's name kept popping up. Yeah. They say, coming up like a bad penny. <laughs> and I was like, what? Weren't pennies good back then? Like, Wasn't were, pennies always good? Ben See a penny, pick it up. I know. He throws away pennies. That is, that is psychotic. I'm like, keep that. We don't know. I literally will stop and pick up a penny. <laughs> they did. They did bring him in and he refused a polygraph. He had no criminal background. Remember, he was honorably discharged yeah. from the Marines. People liked him. They said he was a little odd, but, you know. Never but he refused? S- he refused a polygraph based on principle, whatever that means. David was interviewed again several times by agents, and he never showed any, he, like, never showed any evasiveness or anxiety. He was just cool as a cucumber. Jeez. Just, yeah. But this guy's been, he's been in Vietnam. Right. Like, he's seen some shit and he's, he's seen some to... shit. Who knows what he did over there? Right. Yeah. After much discussion and pestering, he finally agreed to a polygraph. Okay. But he caused the needle to jump a couple times, but not enough to alarm the examiner. For example, his response to the question, did you have anything to do with the death of Sandra Smalligan? He replied, I've been thinking she isn't really dead. 
<laughs> yeah, that's one yeah. way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and they haven't told him, they haven't said, you know, we found proof. Like, right. So, and to the question, do you have any idea how she died? He responded, I'm thinking her husband was with her that night and he might have done it. He starts every sentence with, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. So if you think about it, you can't really be deceptive if you're saying, I'm thinking, because it's like saying, like you're thinking. I'm guessing. Yeah, right. You're not giving a yes or no. Sure. So that's really weird to me. Because I'm thinking she isn't really dead. Meanwhile, the Jaegers received another phone call from the kidnapper on June 25th, 1974. So a year after Susie was kidnapped. Okay. I'm not going to go into like what the kidnapper, same stuff. Like he never gave away his location and he told them things to confirm that he was the kidnapper. And he didn't really taunt them, but he was, it was almost like he was calling them out of this grotesque curiosity. Just like, how bad do you feel? And he was almost friendly with Marietta. Okay. And then he hung up. And a rancher in uh, Western Montana got his phone bill for June and it was astronomical. (laughs) So... He took us to the phone company in Bozeman and they told him the costly call was to a William Yeager in Farmington Hills, Michigan. So the rancher, thank goodness, knew the name and immediately went to the police. And they went out to his property and saw these tire tracks and the rancher had mentioned them before. He was like, I noticed these tire tracks in the dirt on my property near where my son and I had slung a private telephone wire. And they went back to that specific spot and the rancher said you know what? I know who those tracks belong to. They belong to the tires of a truck of a hired hand who left a while back a kid named David Mayerhofer. How did he just know that from the tire tracks? That is some detective shit. I know. I I don't know. I mean, I think ranchers are fairly familiar. You're right. And you know when it's not your tracks on the property. So Mayor Hofer fit the FBI profile and he keeps popping up. So they can't ignore it anymore. Um, He's unmarried. He has military experience and he was a radio communications operator in the Marines, which is interesting to me because he could figure out how to use that personal telephone wire. Right. Yeah. And then when they, they, his name popped up, they were like, Oh "Oh my God. He does have this weird experience. So he came this close again to being ruled out. Yeah. But they saw that he had that experience and they were like, Oh, for sure. Like, yeah. To take a closer look at him. Okay. So not only did he fit the FBI profile, but they also found out that he had a previous incident in 1966 where he pulled a knife on a kid. Oh my God. Yeah. So I'll loop back around to that. Officials took David into custody who denied any involvement. Okay. He claimed police harassment because again, he's popped up so many times and they followed up with him so many times that he's like, you guys are harassing. Right. He quickly got an attorney. Okay. And his dad was the largest employer in that town or at least on main street. Right. So he had the money. To, to get an attorney, even though his dad was the Ran one that went to the FBI. Yeah. So, so that's also kind of. So when, so his dad went to the FBI and was like, you got to check out my son. They never did. They didn't do anything with no, that. It wasn't the, until the not, tire track incident. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. I'm sure they factored that in, but you have to wonder, like, did the FBI not pass that information on? Right. Or, I mean, there wasn't a lot of information sharing back then. There still isn't. Yeah. It inter, still is Especially scary. interagency. Yeah. Like, so I'm not sure, but they didn't go out and arrest David based off his dad's report. So anyway, so he he was feeling harassed. And so he did get an attorney. So on August 19th, on advice of counsel, he willingly submitted to a truth serum test 
at the Montana State Hospital in Warm Springs, which was 80 miles west of Manhattan. So that is though th- that is so fascinating to me that that was a thing that they actually did. And I also would love to know the history of why we stopped doing that because I wonder. Did it I'm work? sure it's like cruel and unusual. Is it like a like a something? proven history of working? And what is the chemical that they put? In uh, it? Uh, uh, something petanol, I think. Something sodium petanol? Yeah. Sodium petanol? Maybe that's what it is. Something like that. You just give me a bottle of Malbec. I know. I just, yeah, exactly. I'll tell I'll you. I'll tell you the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so David did talk about his childhood during this truth serum session. Jeez. So he did have that knife incident. He expanded on that a little bit. He was in high school uh, in 1967. So a year before the Bernie incident. Right. And okay. So he's in high school. He's weird. And he makes a friend who's in middle school. And this boy's parents were even concerned about how close they were. Yeah. Like thinking maybe there was something homosexual going on. And David said later, no, I'm not interested in men, but I did love him. Oh. So that's interesting. It's probably the only friend he ever had. Yeah, right. And evidently this other kid, this other middle schooler became friends with David's friend. And David claims he thought the kid was a bad influence, but really he was He's probably jealous. jealous. So he got this kid to go with him in his truck somewhere and he pulled a knife on him and the kid took the knife from him and stabbed David in the back. What? Yeah. And then they both... A literal backstabber. Yes. They both freaked out and they drove to the hospital and then they lied to the cops. Jesus. So the knife incident, he was just kind of like, well, he told the the psychiatrist, he was like, well, I didn't want to hurt him. I just wanted to scare him. So that was when he was in high school in 1966. A year later, Bernie gets shot from a bridge. I don't know if you can say that you didn't want to hurt him. So he had five siblings. His parents were super indulgent. They divorced when he was 13 and David was heartbroken. His dad cheated with his secretary, 22 years old. Yeah. So he lived with his dad and his soon, you know, his stepmother. Oh, okay. So he was in the Boy Scouts. Okay. Just like Michael, but he was expelled in 1968 for odd, vaguely menacing behavior. (sighs) And that's right before he went into the Marines. So David admitted that he hated and despised women. And he said... It's always a good thing, you know. He said, they're domineering and controlling and can ruin a man's life by getting him to do anything they want him to do. God, wouldn't that be nice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I must not be doing it. Yeah. Right. You're doing something wrong. <laughs> he swore he'd never get married, which was interesting because Sandy was right. not she was not domineering or controlling or anything. Well, and he seemed to be a little bit obsessed with her. So if he hates women, why is he like pursuing her so hard? Yeah. It seems like it's a love hate. Like he goes back and forth. He thought there just wasn't a place for sex in any normal life. Yeah. Wow. That's a stance. Yeah. Sure. He'd masturbated when he was younger, but stopped when he read in a doctor's book that it was hazardous. A doctor's book. (laughs) It'll fall off. Yeah. (laughs) I'd love to know what, doctor's book said that so he up to this point i mean he says this but who knows he'd never had sex he was still a virgin interesting so by his arrest so then he goes through the knife incident again with the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist tells the the law enforcement officials that that david just doesn't fit the psychological pattern 
of a miscreant who could abduct a child, much less butcher her. He's talking about Susie. Right. Also, he personally knew David. Oh, okay. Because this, again... It's a small town. Everyone knows each other. It was 80 miles from Manhattan. Right. So he was a good son, a hard worker, and a moral man. So David was released. Yeah. Right. They had no evidence. Lovely. The same night... A strange thing happened. Imagine that. Oh, no. At Camp Silvercloud, a lakeside Girl Scout campground. Oh, God. Yeah. If you're thinking about becoming a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout or letting your child become one. Think again. Think again. This was a Lakeside Girl Scout campground in the forest, 27 miles west of Warm Springs, which is where he had the truth serum interview. So he didn't even go home. And uh, two girls were walking a wooded path after dark and a man in a black hooded mask snuck up behind them and threw one girl down and started choking the other with a rope. Oh my God. So when another girl shined a flashlight on the scuffle, thank God for that girl. Right. Thank God for nosy Nancy. Yeah, and for flashlights. (laughs) Thank God for electricity. (laughs) (laughs) The shadowy figure fled. It was reported to the Deer Lodge County Sheriff, who only half believed the story. Oh my God. Yeah. Because you you know those girls, they They get out there, they get out there with their hormones and their giggles, and you can't believe- They like to make up stories about being strangled. (laughs) By a guy in a black mask. A deputy did investigate and eventually reported it to a deputy in Bozeman. So kind of inadvertently instigating this interagency sharing, but it was not common right then. So it was just happenstance that all these guys were sharing it. Okay. At some point, the audio recordings from his uh, latest interrogation were later played for Susie's parents. Okay. Who positively identified the caller as David Mayerhofer. Yeah. It's all coming full circle. Yeah. Who has been calling them and taunting them. Yeah. During September of that year, Marietta actually confronted Mayerhofer several times, accusing him of killing her daughter and urging him to confess. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how she confronted That's him. That's a good question. I think, you know, maybe she called. I don't, I'm not sure. On September 24th, the kidnapper presenting himself as Travis called the family again. I bet he kept calling and I and Marietta said, I know you're David Mayerhofer. Sure, sure. Yeah. And you need to turn yourself in and tell us where Susie is. So. Right. He did call again and was threatening that they would never see their daughter alive again because of their cooperation with the police, all this stuff. And Marietta's just like, dude, I know that you're David Mayerhofer. Like, I know Susie's probably not alive. Like, you need to tell us what's going on and refer to him by his name. And he wouldn't respond. He's still, you know, keeping up the facade. Right. And torturing them exactly. for whatever purpose. I still can't figure out the purpose of the phone calls, why he would do that. I mean, other than his own gratification. Exactly. But... The FBI, unbeknownst to Mayerhofer, had been monitoring monitoring the call. And after, this is so weird, it's audio phonoscopic examination. It's a thing. Conclusively determined that he indeed was the caller. So they arrested him the next day. While Mayerhofer was detained at the Gladden County Jail in Bozeman, authorities began a search of his house. Okay. And the interior of his car. They found bloodied women's clothing, washed out bloodstains, a human hand, and several fingers, the latter of which Mayerhofer had kept in the refrigerator. 
So this guy is just like a whole smorgasbord of crazy. I can't even figure him out. It's so complex. It's so it's such a complex case. I can't. I can't. Why don't we give this guy a hand? <laughs> You're terrible. Oh my god, that was awful. So the FBI- I want to point. <laughs> oh my god, you're killing me. Um, okay, sorry. Keep going. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Upon learning, <laughs> upon learning of these findings, they turned around and, and they told Mayor Hofer, "Like, dude, this is what we have. Dude, like, we've got yeah, like you can't. You've literally been through like what two polygraphs and numerous interviews and interrogations, and you managed to get away." Like, now's the time to yeah. stop lying. Like, I'm thinking she's yeah. still alive. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, we're fucking tired. Yeah. Can you please just... <laughs> so he confessed to two crimes. He admitted to abducting and killing Susan Yeager, as well as 19-year-old Sandy okay. Smalligan. At this point, had they even, like, thought of the other Boy Scout or no. the kid from the bridge? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. He admitted that he tried to establish an intimate relationship with Sandy And after she refused, he abducted her, he tied her, he gagged her, and he says she suffocated to death. But I doubt it. They found a bloody leather whip. Right. Like, they found rope. And in regards to Susie Yeager, he claimed he'd stabbed the girl to death shortly after kidnapping her as she had resisted fiercely. What was the point of him kidnapping her? That's the thing. He's never given a motive. Oh, cool. To any of this. That is the... The scariest people are the people who do things without a real motive. Mayor Hofer denied that his aim was to rape either victim. And he said he was still a virgin. Right. I don't know if I'd buy all that. If he's not giving us a motive, I think it's fair to assume that the motive is sexual. Well, I think it's fair to assume that he raped them. And he burned the body. Right. That's the thing. So after he killed his victims, Susie and Sandy, uh, David dismembered the bodies with a hunting knife and a wood saw, then burned them in a fire pit before scattering them across the, the Lockhart homestead. God. Like dismembering a body to me is like the, you have to be fucked up. It takes a that. long time. Yeah. It's like the work involved and like, it's a, it's a human body. I can't, I don't even feel comfortable doing like a cutting apart a chicken, like a chicken that you get at the grocery store where you like, yeah, you get a whole chicken and like, okay, here are the drums, here are the wings, here, whatever. You have to be so I, detached ugh, to do that. I, I mean, you, you, well, you don't see them as human anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Ugh, that's, that's the thing. Barf. In an attempt to avoid uh, the death penalty, uh, Mayor Hofer's defense attorney brokered a plea deal involving the confession of two additional murders that had not Mm, been linked. Here they go. One was the death of 13-year-old Bernie Pullman, who was shot to death on the bridge. And the second was that of 12-year-old Boy Scout, Michael Rainey. God, how strange. Like, he shot someone, he beat someone to death, he strangled someone. Or he stabbed Susie. Yeah, so he stabbed, he beat, he shot. And he strangled. And he strangled. Yeah, that's what makes it so... He has no motive, notable motive, no, no, like typical way that he commits these crimes. He's just like trying things out to see what works. I don't know. And then you factor into the, the animal cruelty. Right. And then the knife incident. Right. You know, when he was in high school on September 29th, 1974. So this is essentially just six years after he started, he started just four hours after giving his confessions 
Mayor Hofer was found dead in his jail cell, having hanged himself with a towel. What? Yeah. So no justice. Oh my God. And, and you, we don't get any answers. No. It's like Israel keys. Like where you're like, yeah, we need to know, but then he just freaking kills himself and you won't ever know. Exactly. Israel keys. Yeah. But yeah. they don't care. You know, they, they, they're not looking, they don't want to give any answers. They're like, I did yeah. what I wanted to do. And, but man, that sucks. Yeah. So jailers hadn't been informed that Mayor Hofer was a murder suspect. So he wasn't put on suicide watch. It's just a last little tidbit. Mayor Hofer's younger brother, Alan Mayor Hofer, was arrested in 1986 for a string of child rapes near oh, Seattle, Washington. No. He was convicted in 1988 and released in 2017. So that family was not right. Alan has declined to speak to journalists or police about possible connections between his and David Graham. <gasps> that is very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. If there was if they were somehow together working together on these things or I don't know. That's something was going on. <sighs> that's really scary. And like I wonder what the deals with the rest of the family. Like are they <laughs> I, normal? I mean, I mean they probably I, keep a pretty low profile, but it yeah, and the dad, he clearly was not oblivious to the fact that his child was a monster and wondered, did he play some part? I, I have no idea because we don't know what yeah. David's motives were. We so. don't. So what did the behavioral science unit, like, what did they say about this? What did they, what was their like profile of the person that did this? Single, young, white male. Okay. Uh, military experience. Mm -hmm. Kind okay. of a loner. Think had no go. real career. Um, check, check, check. They did profile that he would be a local. Okay. So, so but hit the nail on the head. Yeah. So Montana serial killer. Wow. Who knew? What a doozy. Yeah. I've never heard of that one before. Yeah. I hadn't either until I had read this book. And especially because the BAU or like the behavioral sciences unit is like a pretty well known. Most yeah. of us know about it now, whether mm -hmm. because be because of criminal lines or because yeah. true crime fans. Yeah. But, or uh, mind hunters off Netflix. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't know that that was, this was the case that kind of started it all. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. And thanks, Kate, for presenting a very interesting case that I have never heard of yeah. before. And I want to do like additional research and like look up pictures. And oh, just, just really dig deep. Yeah. Uh, we posted pictures of David. And uh, like I said, I couldn't find any pictures of Michael Rainey, but they did have Bernie and Susie and Sandy. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you found this case as interesting as I did. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, please do. We post pictures to follow up all of our episodes. So you can find us on Instagram at premeditated podcast. And if you have any ideas or want to share something with us, feel free to shoot us an email at the premeditated podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening guys. And, and tell, tell your, your folks, folks we says hi. hi.